baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up, and your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. Welcome to KCBS In-Depth, a discussion of one of the topics making news this week. This is KCBS In-Depth. I'm Stan Bunger. It's that time of year. Millions of American students of all ages are going back to school, and that means a lot of conversations about issues large and small, everything from how we pay for education to what we expect the process to produce. One thing almost everyone can agree upon, education means learning of some kind. And when people try to learn, they sometimes struggle. It was 12 years ago that a financial analyst named Sal Khan started helping a young cousin who was having trouble with math. It was distance learning and personalized learning, delivered one-to-one over the Internet. Pretty soon, other family members wanted in, and that led to Sal Khan making videos of his tutorials and posting them on YouTube And then things really blew up. Today, it would be hard to find a student, teacher, or parent who hasn't heard of the Khan Academy, the nonprofit started by Sal Khan that offers its video lessons free over the Internet. Many of the lessons are still delivered by Sal Khan himself. Susan Lee Taylor and I recently talked with Sal Khan for an episode of our 10 Questions with Stan and Susan podcast. And for this edition of KCBS In-Depth, we bring you that conversation. From helping your cousin to 15 million others is quite a leap. Precisely what was the gap, the, the need that wasn't being met that you're now filling? Well, I think the, the need's been there for a long time is uh, to get help when you need it. Uh, we've all been in a situation where we're trying to do homework at night or we're preparing for a test and, and we're, we're having a little bit of difficulty. And even if we read a textbook or we get an explanation, we also want to get practice to, uh, to make sure we understand it. And I saw that with my cousins in the early days, this is back in 2004, uh, that by me being there to uh, first tutor them, and then I said, hey, you know, I got a background, I can program a little bit, let me make practice problems for them so they can get as much practice as they need. And then a friend suggested that, hey, why don't you record some of your lessons as, as videos and upload them onto YouTube. I immediately thought that was a horrible idea. I said, YouTube's for cats playing piano, not <laughs> serious, serious math. Uh, but uh, I gave it a, a shot once I, once I got over the idea that it wasn't my idea. And, um, you know, my cousins really liked both dimensions of it. They liked the fact that they were able to get explanations at their own time and pace. There was no stigma associated with There's no shame. You could be a teenager and have to review a little bit of your elementary school arithmetic. And they also liked the unlimited practice. And so you, you take that all the way to today, where, as you mentioned, 15 million students and it continues to grow. And, and a lot of teachers are using it in classrooms as well, it's that combination of, of being able to learn and practice exactly what you need, exactly when you need it. So, so the on-demand part, obviously huge, but there's also this super simplicity to the things. I mean, you know, it, it's, the, it's the analog of standing up, as a lot of coders do, as you pointed out, in front of a whiteboard and drawing a bunch of lines and some arrows and explaining what they're doing. Is that important to the success or is that, am I missing something? In hindsight, yeah, I think you're right. I think that's actually been essential to the success. As I mentioned, it started off, Khan Academy started off as essentially a place for people to get personalized practice. And that actually is still where we put most of the resources. And as I just mentioned, the videos were a bit of a, hey, well, let me see what I can do to, to, to help, to, to be a supplement. But I think 
because at the time I said, well, what would be the simplest way of doing it? I was like, well, and people forget, even in 2004, cell phone video cameras weren't that good. And I was just doing it by myself. So I said, there must be a way to capture on a screen what someone's writing down and just hear a voice. And I used that for some of those, that earlier, the earliest content. And I immediately got positive feedback that it actually was less distracting because you don't see the, the human face. And, you know, my face in particular would probably be unpleasant. And then on top of that, you, you, it, it feels like you're sitting next to someone uh, at, a co- at a kitchen table and, and working through the lessons. And one thing that I've always tried to convey either through the videos or through the practice, and now Khan Academy is much more than me. We're, we're over 150 folks and it's a nonprofit, et cetera, et cetera. But the thing that's always bothered me, whether it's in math or in science or, or frankly, in any topic, is when students are learning things as these very one-off, memorized formula, it doesn't connect to other things. And one of the, the things we've, we've tried to do with Khan Academy is let students see the beauty in the concepts, let them see that these formulas are just expressing a truth about the universe, that it's very connected to something that they already know, that it's intuitive. Uh, and I think students have appreciated that. When you go to the Khan Academy website, you have three prominent squares right at, at the front of the page. Students start here. Teachers start here. Parents start here. What's going on behind each of those banners? Yeah. Well, well, students we've talked about. And just to be, you know, Khan Academy, we're a nonprofit. I don't own Khan Academy. No one owns Khan Academy. It's, we're, we're funded by, for the most part, donations. Uh, the, the students get the help that they need when they need it. Some students are just getting that one-off help uh, for the test tomorrow to help with the homework. But there are some students who are, uh, you know, we got a, a story from a young girl in Afghanistan where when the Taliban kept her from going to school six or seven years ago, this became her school. And she not only practiced her English or learned English with, with these things, but she uh, got from an elementary level school a level uh, mathematics all the way to a high school level, wanted to become a physicist, smuggled herself into Pakistan because the SAT was only administered there, not in Afghanistan, and did surprisingly well. And eventually she got political asylum into the United States and she's doing physics research with an MIT professor. So uh, there's a whole spectrum of, of users for, on, on, on the student side. On the teacher side, we view the teachers as the essential actor in ensuring most students' success. In an ideal world, you know, sometimes people try to say, is it a virtual versus a physical experience thing? And we think that the virtual can enhance the physical experience, that if students can get uh, lessons, if they can get practice at their own time and pace, if we can give teachers more data, it can liberate the the physical classroom so that teachers can do more more focused interventions. They don't have to move every student at a fixed pace. Uh, They can do uh, more project-based learning, et cetera, et cetera. So behind the teacher link, uh, you see a, a whole set of tools, including a lot of teacher training, to help them do more personalized learning in their classroom and to help them get more data and things that, that helps it save them time. On the parent side, it's one, for parents to understand what's going on, and also some of those teacher tools, we have a versions of them for parents so that parents can understand what their students need help in. Let me go back to the decision to leave this as a nonprofit organization. Uh, given the scale, I mean, <laughs> we're going to throw around all these Silicon Valley words, right? But you had an audience, you had scale, you had content. What do you guess any parent in America would have paid on an annual basis to not have to deal with the, Mom, how do I do this calculus question? question. Um, so what made you stay nonprofit? Well, you know, <laughs> My, my previous career, even when I was doing this as a hobby, from 2004 to 2009, my day job, I was working as an analyst in a hedge fund. So I, 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 I'm definitely, you know, I, I believe in capitalism and I believe in, in, in uh, uh, the, that 
for-profits can do a lot of good work, but it felt like education and probably healthcare are two spaces where markets don't function as well as we would, as we would like. And especially if you're, you know, in the early days, I was getting letters from kids all over the planet, some kids who probably could pay $20 a month or $30 a month to, to use something like this. But I got a lot of letters from uh, kids and parents who couldn't afford something like this, and they were getting a lot of benefit. And I was just getting so much psychic reward from that, that, uh, you know, when you come to about 2008, I, I was getting a lot of venture capitalists saying, hey, you've got scale, you've, you know, people like this thing, it's already building a brand, here's $100,000 if you want to start it as a company. And it was tempting, because I obviously enjoyed working on this. Uh, but when I really thought about what this could be, you know, the, the second conversation with the venture capitalists, and I have many very good friends who are venture capitalists, and for the most part, they're all very good people. <laughs> the second conversation was, hey, well, how about we monetize this content or that content? And that was oftentimes the content that I would most want the, the student who, uh, need, you know, uh, the student who doesn't have resources to be able to access. And even a student with resources, I never want a, fric a friction to learning. Uh, the world would be better off if anyone on the planet who wants to learn can just click a button and learn. They don't have to go get a credit card out or they don't have to ask their parents. And so that was a general thinking. And I also, I read a lot of science fiction books and I always like to think about, well, what, let, let's extrapolate things. And in the for-profit realm, you know, a huge home run success is you become the next Google or, or Facebook or, or Apple and nothing wrong with that. That would obviously be great. Uh, but then I thought about, well, what about the, a home run in the nonprofit world? Well, in the nonprofit world, what if this could be the next you know, Harvard or Oxford or, or the library system or the Smithsonian. And it was delusional for a guy operating it out of a walk-in closet. To, to think that. But, um, but you know, I said, why not? You know, you, you live once. I was getting this. It felt like something was in the air, that there was an opportunity to be able to reach many, many more people. And maybe, just maybe, Khan Academy, instead of being a company, could be more of an institution for the world. Sal, you described teachers as the essential actor in assuring a student's success. But what about folks for whom the traditional classroom wasn't a good fit? Do you find that, that some people come to your website trying to get their GED and are just completely self-taught? Yeah, I would say actually our, even though the bulk of our, our, of our content is in kind of the school age content from actually we're going to launch something for pre-k soon too but all the way through the core of college we get a lot of adult learners uh, telling us hey i've just retired from the military i want to go back to the college this is how i was able to re-engage we have a lot of folks just as you described who are uh, trying to get through their ged we've even had studies of prisoners who you know there's ged programs within prisons and now they're able to use khan academy and they have way higher uh, pass rates so we absolutely see a lot of that you know, if you ask a lot of veteran teachers, and they're honest with you, they'll tell you about a frustration with the way we do education, not just in the U.S., but in a lot of countries where we march kids through based on age. And they'll point out, well, we don't do that with swim lessons or ski lessons. You know, if you can't make a, a snowplow turn, you don't move up to the next class. What have you learned regarding the progress young people or older people make with lessons, and how related is that to their actual, their actual age? Yeah, I, I mean, what you're highlighting, and I think this touches on the previous question, uh, my read, you know, we all, while we were going through school, we all saw either our friends, our family members, or ourselves hit walls in classrooms where all of a sudden something doesn't make sense, uh, you know, the class has to move on, cover the next thing, and teachers recognize it too. They know that, hey, I just gave that test. Uh, those kids over there, you know, two or three of them failed the test. A bunch of them got a C on the test. A C didn't know 20 or 30% of the material. 
But now I, I have to move on or I've told that I have to move on to the next concept. And that next concept, especially if it's in something like math or science, it's going to build on that concept that I just found out that half, you know, two or three kids failed and a bunch of kids didn't know 20 or 30%. Even that A student, what was that 5% she didn't know? It could have been a careless error. It could have been something very important that's going to be debilitating. And what I think is happening, and we're seeing a lot of evidence in this case, is that those gaps accumulate. They might not show up as debilitating in the next unit or the unit after that, but if you have enough gaps in arithmetic and pre-algebra, all of a sudden algebra class, you see that equation and that equation has an exponent in it and you were a little shaking in exponents in sixth grade, well, now the algebra becomes a lot more difficult. Or you're in a trigonometry class and there's an algebra equation, but you were shaking algebra, now the trigonometry becomes impossible. And the reason why I think a lot of people disengage in the system is they, they start, well, it, it hits their self-confidence. They're like, well, I thought I was a bright person, but this stuff just looks like Greek to me now. And Teachers recognize it too. They're like, I wish I could do a, a focus intervention with that one student or those three students and fill those gaps. But those gaps are in things that are off the, the curriculum. And so they didn't know what to do either. And what you're talking about, about the ski lessons or the swim lessons, that is the gold standard. That's always been the gold standard, frankly, throughout human history. If you were to go back a thousand years, very few people got an education. But those that did got something like the swim lessons today. You know, the few people that got an education were probably a, you know, nobility, a young prince. And they would have a private tutor, and only once the student got their, say, multiplication tables really down, then they would move on to the next concept, go to division, and then the next concept, go to exponents, whatever it might be. But about 200 years ago, there was a very good idea, which is you have, these, uh, you have the United States, you have the United Kingdom, you have Germany, you have Japan. These were the first countries to say, hey, uh, we need to have a large educated population. It's not acceptable that only 20 or 30% of the population can read. We need 100% of the population uh, to read. And so you have this idea of free mass public education, which has been transformative around the uh, Industrial Revolution. It's no coincidence that those were the first countries to industrialize and become middle income or wealthy, wealthy nations. But a compromise had to be made during the Industrial Revolution. The only economic way to educate everyone was to run schools a little bit like a factory, group students by age, as you mentioned, uh, uh, in groups of 30, 35, walk through a curriculum at the same pace. You can kind of imagine almost, you know, on a, on a conveyor belt. Uh, some kids are getting most of the material. Those are the A students. Some kids are building gaps, and they're kind of making their way, their way barely through it, and some kids fail out. And that was kind of okay in the Industrial Revolution, or at least by the, the planners of the day, because, hey, we didn't need that many kids that really mastered algebra or trigonometry. Uh, but what we're going into a world today is actually, you know, with robotics and artificial intelligence, we, we might not need as much of the of, of kind of the, 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 the labor, the physical labor, but we're going to need a lot more of creative thinking. We're going to need a lot more of, of, of knowledge work. And so it's not acceptable if, if kids fall off the conveyor belt, so to speak. And so the opportunity now, you know, I could have said all of, we could have had this conversation 30 years ago, but we're like, well, what do we do about it? We would either have to get everyone a personal tutor or not be able to do it for everyone. Uh, but what's exciting about the technology is, and I'm, you know, I always put a disclaimer, it's not technology for technology's sake, it's technology with a goal. It's how do we allow everyone to learn at their own pace, fill those gaps, get that experience like the swimming experience or the ski experience like you just mentioned. And in, in my mind, we, the, the tools like Khan Academy can, can go a long way to help teachers have a classroom with 30 students, but be able to reach all of their needs. 
Stan talked about the simplicity of, of your chalkboard style and doing math, but Khan Academy teaches things other than math, like, say, world history. So what does the Khan Academy offer that's different than if I would just do a general scan on the Internet or, or Google, I don't know, World War II, something like that? Yeah, well, we actually are right now uh, in the process of launching things about government and civics and, on, and as you mentioned, world history. And there's two things. One is the practice dimension of Khan Academy, the same practice, that personalized practice uh, that we talked about in math. It now exists in these humanities subjects where a student can, or any of us can go, you can take a, you know, you can say, hey, how well do I understand the United States Constitution? And then you'll say, okay, I understand Article One well, but you don't understand the Bill of, you know, you don't understand Bill of Rights well, or, or whatever it might be. And so, and then they'll say, why don't you, why don't you go to this lesson? And then the lessons themselves, there are videos and articles, and those videos are, are using the same methodology of like, hey, let's let's connect the dots. Let's actually let's actually do a close reading of the, the Declaration of Independence or of the Constitution and really understand things well. But then you also get as much practice as you need. Uh, so that you can feel good uh, that you you've actually really understood the material. Uh, you know, there's a lot of really good stuff, especially in the humanities, out on the internet generally. And so I, I would suggest that you know it's that's always good for extra context. But the uh, what we try to do at, at Khan Academy is really make sure that you're you're filling in those gaps, that you really get those core essentials, and that you're able to practice it and get feedback. You know, you touched on an area here where the antenna go up a little bit. There's very little controversy about the Pythagorean theorem, right? I think we've all sort of agreed on that. But once you start touching on areas of civics, social science, art, humanities, you may begin to get questions about the validity of the curriculum or the pedagogy. How do you deal with that? Yeah, it's actually fascinating. I remember this was several years ago. Uh, the CIA, and this was literally on CIA.gov, the CIA's website, they released documents about some interventions they had made in governments in Latin America and during the Cold War. And this was before we had done a, a concerted effort like we're doing now in some of these subjects. But I was like, that's just fascinating. Let me make a video about it. And I made a video about it. And this was the whole, um, uh, well, I made the video on it. And, and then immediately when I uploaded it, I, you know, the comment board just lit up. I got uh, a bunch of uh, many people from the West saying, hey, well, you, you know, you got to understand this was during the Cold War, so it might seem a little bit bizarre now, but it, it might have been justified in that time. But at the same time, I got students from some of the countries where these interventions happened, and, and they were writing stuff like, this is an imperialist view, this is propaganda, my uncle died in that intervention. And at first I thought, gee, you know, this didn't happen with the algebra videos. <laughs> and, and, They've and never fought a war over algebra, have they? Exactly. Well, be, sometimes academics can get into wars over algebra, but most, most folks don't. But, but I also thought, well, you know, this also didn't happen when I took uh, politics or history in high school or, or, in, or, in, or in college. You know, it wasn't like a Chilean kid uh, came into the door and screamed at the professor and said, you're an imperialist pig, you're whitewashing history. But then I said, why didn't that happen? That's actually valuable that it happened. Because all too often, history is taught in a, in a closed door. And you, you actually don't know what's being said. You're getting probably one viewpoint. A lot of great professors out there that are, and a lot of great textbooks out there that are doing their very best to be unbiased. But frankly, everyone has biases. And all you can do is try to, uh, uh, try to mitigate them some. And it's incredibly valuable from a learning experience to, to understand that there's these very different points of view about these exact same events. And so what we try to do at Khan Academy on these things, we try to, to really be as unbiased as possible. 
Uh, when that is close to impossible, we, we try to get people with, with on either side of the issue, but who are reasonable and who are, you know, uh, talking in terms, you know, who are, who are logically and analytically thinking about the issue. And we also open up uh, the discussion so that as long as people are not using bad words and are being respectful, we, we keep comments out, out there. So if someone disagrees, if they're able to cite, hey, this actually happened, here's another primary document that uh, would back up the counter position. We love that. You know, that's actually what the discuss. That's actually what the conversation should be in some of these humanities things. And I think that's the learning is that all too often history is taught as, hey, this is what happened. Memorize it. But there's so much about history of like this is what we believe what happened based on probably the victors of that war because they, they were able to you know the the people who lost the war many of them died so they're you know they're, they're not going to be able to tell that story or whatever else and so it's really powerful to have all of this out in the open to have the sunshine on it and then to have a, a vibrant discussion around it. Have you discovered through the years is there any type of student for whom the Khan Academy is not a good fit? I mean I think back to my college years and trying to take a statistics class online I failed miserably. Then I retook the class with a live professor, and I was able to engage in class, and that made all the difference for me. I got an A. Absolutely. I think it's a question of what supports are ideal for, for students. So there, are, uh, there is a class of students, like that, that young girl, Sultana, that I mentioned in Afghanistan, who was so hungry for learning, so determined that you know, she took Khan Academy and then just it became her thing. And she spent hours on it every day between. I mean, her story is incredible. But there's a lot of students that, you know, might want to do that. But either they with the online tool, they hit a they hit a, a roadblock. The, the videos and the practice aren't doing it aren't enough for them. A lot of us and I think most of us, frankly, I think even the sultanas of the world would have liked this want to be part of a community of learners. They want to be able to talk about things. They want to go and ask for help for, from someone. And so our ideal use case is when Khan Academy is done with a teacher in a physical environment, because I think then you do get the best of both worlds. So in, in your statistics example, I, I, I think the best of both worlds would have been uh, your statistics professor using Khan Academy to allow you to fill in your gaps. Some of your gaps might have been in things that were even in before statistics. Learn at your own time and pace. Get the data of where you and where your peers are. And then use that information and say, hey, maybe you could tutor your friend or maybe your friend could tutor you. Or, hey, you five are, are having trouble with this one concept. I'm going to do a very small group a session with y'all while the other 25 students work, you know, continue to work on their thing. And then I'll do another small group session with another five students. Or all of y'all are progressing just fine, so we're going to use this class period to do a statistical experiment, uh, a hands-on project. Uh, and so I think if you do something like that, you, you get the best of both worlds. Let me ask you that classical business question as we wrap up, and that is, is Khan Academy aspirin or vitamins? Are we aspirin or vitamins? I'm, I'm processing the metaphor. Well, I guess um, it's the old thing, you know, is your business selling a solution to a problem or is it offering something that makes people, you know, that, that's, that they don't need but makes them feel better? Okay. <laughs> this is, that's the first time I've ever heard the metaphor. I, I, I might use that in the future. You've got to spend more time on Sand Hill Road, Sal. <laughs> <laughs> um, you know, I'd argue it's, it's aspirin. Uh, the, you know, we've talked about this, these issues of, you know, if, if I were to ask you right now, what percentage of the population took calculus versus what percentage of the population actually understood calculus? Oh, boy. 
Good calculus. What do you, what do you guess? What, what do you think it is? Susan, would you go 5%, yeah. 10%? Got it. That, I'm guessing that way. Is, is, are we close? I don't know. I mean, I, I think you're probably about right. And if you said what percentage took algebra, it's close to 100% took algebra. But I think the percent that really could, you know, apply algebra and use it is probably also closer to that 5, 5, 10%. And so that's a real big issue. If you look at community colleges in the United States, 70, 70% of students at community colleges have to take remedial math. And remedial math is essentially seventh or eighth grade math. And that tells you that uh, many years of their schooling, they weren't able to process what was going on. And it's not that these students aren't bright, it's just that they were hitting these walls. And I'd argue that it was because they were forced ahead, these gaps were debilitating. And so, and even at four-year colleges, 25% have to take remedial math, essentially seventh grade math. If you sit, talk about the number of students who have to take other high school level subjects like algebra or trigonometry, it's even a much higher number. Frankly, most students have to take these subjects. And so it's a really big problem and it's actually hurting the, the most vulnerable students. These students who have to take remedial math, they have to pay money, they have to take time off, they, they get into debt. It's not credit bearing. It's the biggest predictor of not, of, of, of not graduating, but still having debilitating debt. And so uh, I'm hoping that we, in conjunction with teachers and schools and districts and colleges, uh, can be part of, that, part of that solution to allow students to fill in their gaps, learn at their own time and pace, remediate if necessary, move ahead if necessary. Because uh, frankly, we're all going to be better off if, if just everyone's got more skills. You've been listening to an episode of the 10 Questions with Stan and Susan podcast with our guest Sal Khan, the founder of the Khan Academy online learning portal. We invite you to visit radio.com or other podcast portals to find 10 Questions with Stan and Susan. More than two dozen episodes currently posted and fresh content is being added regularly. With Susan Lee Taylor, I'm Stan Bunger. You've just heard KCBS In-Depth, a news interview program for all news 740 and FM 106.9. KCBS. Baseball is in full swing. NBA playoffs are heating up. And your NFL team is gearing up for training camp. Listen to the latest on the teams you love here on the Odyssey app. The biggest sports radio stations in the country providing unrivaled local coverage of their teams all in one place. Exclusive interviews with players, coaches, and team executives streaming live and always available on demand. Stay in the know with your favorite teams right here on the Odyssey app. 